Well, good morning, everyone. I'm uh, glad to be seeing all of you, and for those of you that had a chance to get away for the weekend, we're thrilled that uh, you get the break, and hopefully you will uh, rest and relax. I did have a couple people saying, well, we're actually leaving on our break on Sunday, so we're not going to watch you. And I said, well, I said in about three weeks, I'm going on vacation, and I'm not going to watch you. So that's just kind of how, how it unfolded, but anyway... But we're thrilled you're here, and if you're watching online, we're thrilled that you could drop in with us this morning, and uh, I'm going to invite you to uh, bow with me as we just begin our time in the Word and prayer. Gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you that you are merciful and compassionate. The only reason we have this privilege and freedom to come together is not just because of the things that have been established in terms of our country, but more, even more significantly in terms of the salvation you offer to us in Christ. Father, help us never to take that for granted. This is a weekend where we remember the freedom that we have and how costly it is, and it is no better weekend to think of what it cost you for our redemption. We think of our opportunity to come before your throne of grace and to acknowledge your love, your grace, your mercy, your compassion, and we are reminded of the fact that we owe you everything, that we do not belong to ourselves, but we belong to you. We've been bought with a price, and therefore we ought to glorify you with the way we live. We ask that as we continue to live out this Christian life in the world, that you would help cement within our own, the fabric of our own thinking and our values really what Christ modeled for us as we take another peek at our journey through Mark. We ask that you will stir our hearts to the things that are missing and gaps in our own life and our own walk, that the Spirit of God will be able to connect that to the real circumstances that we live in and how we need to take new bold steps of faith to live not just out of gratitude for what you've done, but in obedience to being disciples of Jesus and called to be ambassadors and representatives of you and the world. For all of this, we pray as we bow before you. May your spirit continue to be our teacher as we think through the implications of Jesus interacting with an individual who sought him out, who desperately needed your compassion. And for all of this, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. Mark chapter 1, starting at verse 46, there are three segments to this encounter that Jesus has with the leper. Uh, I want to just read them through, and then we will kind of creep our way through the elements of what this is talking about. Mark 1.40 says this, And a leper came to him, and imploring him, and kneeling, said to him, If you are willing, you can make me clean. Moved with pity, and uh, I'm going to slide in the word compassion there. Uh, moved with pity, he, Jesus, stretched out his hand and touched him and said to him, I will be clean. And immediately the leprosy left him, and he was made clean. And Jesus sternly charged him and sent him away at once and said to him, See that you say nothing to anyone, but go show yourself to the priest and offer for, um, and offer for your cleansing what Moses commanded for a proof to them. But he went out and began to talk freely about it. And spread the news so that Jesus could no longer openly enter a town, but was out in a desolate places, and people were coming to him from every quarter. You know, I don't know about you, but there's always times in our life that we will find times that we're so desperate that we're willing to almost do anything. 
Sometimes it's physical sickness, sometimes it's our emotional despair, it can be a whole number of circumstances in our life that kind of suck away the hope. Often it's the way people treat us and sometimes we just feel discouraged and we value nothing. And back in Jesus' time when people faced especially health issues, they didn't quite have all the technology and medicine that we had, so they had... very different approaches to things. Although the things that we're gonna talk about this morning ought to be really reflective of our last two years going through COVID. Because as technologically advanced as we are, uh, we didn't know what to do with it. So they did the same things that we're gonna discover that Israel did in the Old Testament is that they would isolate people and they would quarantine people till they found out whether this thing would be infectious or contagious. And uh, they took very similar steps in these circumstances that we're going to read about that we took over the last couple of years. Last week, I had talked to you or mentioned a friend of mine, Brent Jordan, who had uh, contracted cancer back in 2018, followed up by checkups where they discovered a very rare cancer in his spinal cord. He was supposed to go through surgery a couple of weeks ago, and the proposed surgery was pretty simple, although radically life-changing. They found this cancer in his L3 lumbar in his spinal cord and they figured the only way to keep that thing from metastasizing and literally spreading like wildfire and taking his life was to basically go in and actually remove that piece of vertebrae. And then they would have to reconstruct something in there and fuse it in order for him to function and I have no idea all the implications of that, whether he ends up in a wheelchair, whether he can walk and play sports or what it looked like. Anything probably would have been preferable to losing your life. The day before they went to do the surgery, they brought him in and they did all the tests and scans just to verify everything, and the doctors canceled the surgery because they couldn't find any trace of the cancer in his lumbar. They still found some abnormal cells, but in their journey, they're like over the moon excited because God's grace and compassion and mercy has touched them in a way they didn't expect. The passage we're looking at this morning is a passage that I often use when it comes to praying for people like this. Because one of the things the leper does is one of the things that has remarkable respect for Jesus, and we're going to take a look at it as we think about it, but the very word and verbiage that the leper uses is often one that I use when I'm praying for people, especially when it comes to physical illness. And that is, Lord, if you're willing, you can make me clean. You can heal me. And yet one of the great conundrums in our own spiritual walk is there's lots of times when Jesus doesn't seem to be willing. And it's hard for us to process that because if God is really good and if he cares about us, why would he not heal all of his children of the afflictions that they tend to have? And so the text begins with us talking about a leper who decides to seek out Jesus. Now, leprosy is not something we talk about on a regular basis, at least I don't. Uh, It is not something that's familiar with us. In fact, we would probably relegate it to those old diseases that we don't have to deal with anymore. And so I want to give you a little bit of a sense of the risks that the leper has taken here in order to approach Jesus because unless you understand a little bit of the stigma of sorts that go with things like leprosy, you may not understand the, the sort of the big step of faith that the leper is taking in terms of approaching Jesus. If you go back into the Old Testament, you'll discover there's two primary passages that deal with leprosy. Leprosy is dealt in Leviticus chapter 13, which simply identifies what leprosy is or how the priests 
identify what leprosy is, and it's fairly lengthy, so we're not going to read it here this morning. Chapter 14 really talks about how they determine whether someone is cleansed from leprosy, and again, it's the priest's responsibility to take a person through that process. There's like 30-some verses in chapter 14, and most of us, unless you uh, live on a farm, would give up on it long before you get to the end of the process because it's tedious, it is, goes through sacrifices and offering, offerings that they need to make in order to declare a person clean. It is not something you want to get. Leprosy literally means to scale or peel off. I don't know about you, but when I was growing up, I had these visions of kind of like the walking dead. Uh, you sort of had these images that leprosy was stuff that basically was rotting you from the inside out, that it was only a matter of time if you got leprosy that you would basically just, every, your lungs and, and organs would shut down and you would die. you basically rot moving around. Now, those, there's extreme expressions of diseases that will do that to people, but in the Old Testament, leprosy really represented a variety of different kinds of things that could come upon a person. In fact, if you read through Leviticus 13, you will discover that if someone got burned and it left a scar, they would check them for leprosy because that was a possible potential wound that could get infected. And they had to be very careful back then, since they didn't have hospitals the way we did, to quarantine and isolate people because if they got something that was contagious, it could go through the entire people. And so when you look at this, you will discover that uh, when someone got leprosy, whatever it looked like, uh, they were considered ceremonially unclean. Uh, they were prevented from going into the holy city. They were excluded from a lot of social activities in the community, depending on what kind of leprosy they seemed to contract. And uh, they were was frequently considered a divine punishment. It was had this sense of serious sin, and this was the consequences. And coming out of the Old Testament, that was exactly kind of the language of the covenant relationship God had with Israel. I will keep the diseases and afflictions and you will live in peace. And there was a, a huge physical element to God's covenant relationship with them. He would protect them from these things. In the New Testament, we, do, we tend to do the same thing. We, we've offloaded a lot in the Old Testament and said, God, you know, if you really love us, you should keep us from experiencing bad things and you should deliver us from bad things. But one of the things I want to do is contextualize this idea of leprosy because if you think it's non-existent, you'd be wrong. Uh, probably in the United States, there's probably fewer than 20,000 cases a year of leprosy, which is percentage-wise utterly insignificant, unless, of course, you're the one that gets it. But leprosy still actually exists depending on how you want to define it. Let me give you... Uh, a little bit of a, a current context in terms of leprosy, just so that we can sort of feel this a little bit. Uh, the risk of leprosy, one is that it usually would require urgent medical attention even today. It can be dangerous or life-threatening if untreated, and it can last for several years or be a lifelong malady that someone has. Uh, the symptoms are often things like light-colored or red skin patches, the reduced sensation to touch and get pins and needles in your hands and feet, you would have numbness at times. So if some of you are kind of like, you know, one of these people that like go online and look at every medical thing on the planet because you're feeling off today, don't, don't do that with this, uh, otherwise you'll go running from the room. But anyway, weakness in hands and feet, pain, uh, pain in your joints, 
disfiguring skin sores and sometimes weight loss. If you begin to look at some of the other elements of this uh, and complications if it goes untreated, even today you can lose your vision. Uh, you can get hand deformities and disfiguration of the face, kidney failure, permanent damages to internal elements of your nose where there's sort of constant ongoing struggle with nosebleeds and uh, sometimes nerves are damaged outside of the brain and spinal cord and as we mentioned before, it can take a person's life even today if they get leprosy. So when we come back to the story where Jesus is going around to the different synagogues around Capernaum and, and preaching and pro proclaiming the gospel and casting out demons as we read in the previous text, all of a sudden he's approached by this leper. And one of the things we have to realize that in spite of the fact that leprosy often represented a variety of different skin conditions or on a person, so it wasn't always... Uh, you know, this plague that, that we often think of it about. It had a lot of other different kind of symptoms and indications, but the priests would come along and they would take a look at it, and if they weren't sure what it was, they would basically isolate the person outside the camp, uh, the city, and they would have to stay there seven days, and then they'd come back and the priests would go and examine them again. We do know that a person could operate within society depending on the degree of leprosy that they were categorized or that they're checking out. Uh, what the one thing they wanted to do is make sure it wasn't contagious. And so the, the priests had to make judgment calls in terms of their flexibility to move around and be involved in the community. Apparently, this leper either was breaking protocol because he had leprosy. He was obviously diagnosed with leprosy, at least according to their standards. And uh, we're not told whether he had any kind of freedom or not. So if he's it would seem to indicate by the fact that he's desperately chasing Jesus that he's got a maybe more extreme flavor of leprosy and he's in quarantine, so he takes a big risk approaching Jesus, but I suspect it's because he hasn't had a lot of compassion from anybody at this point. See, what the priest did is, because of their limited abilities, they weren't all physicians and that kind of thing, they did their best, but when they looked at him, they said, look, we gotta, we gotta isolate you. We gotta make sure this isn't gonna hurt someone else, so like, you're, being around us puts us in harm's way. Sounds familiar, doesn't it? And so they would isolate and they would put him off for seven days and then they'd check him again. If he wasn't sure, he'd isolate him again. And they could do that and I, I've heard stories where they said they literally have camps where the lepers go and live out there and they'd wear Basically, like they were mourning, they'd have sackcloth and, and they'd walk around crying, unclean, unclean, because there's individuals needed to know that if they had the flexibility to move around a little bit, you had to avoid them. So there was all this examination, there was isolation, and then maybe declaration that you were clean or have to stay isolated, but it's not filled with a lot of compassion. It follows the letter of the law and what needs to happen, but not getting a lot of compassion for everybody. You're, you're kind of the person we want to avoid because we don't want to get what you've got. And Sometimes we find that in our own culture, isn't it? It's easy for us, whether they have an actual disease or not, that certain people we think are acceptable to be around and others are not. It's easy for us to stigmatize people because they're different than the way we are. Or they've gone through circumstances in life that we didn't go through and we think it's their fault and so they get what they deserve but don't bring it here. And so we often face this kind of stigmatism, this kind of problem that people get into. 
But one of the things is that there's probably not a lot of compassion. Might be sympathy, that's why they actually created camps, but just not a lot of hope. One statement out of a commentary was this, provision for those afflicted with leprosy, but not much treatment. Often socially ostracized from everyday life for prophylactic reasons, in other words, to protect the community. So his coming to Jesus is taking a risk. He's either breaking protocol or he's desperate to find some kind of hope in the midst of his struggle. And I've run into this with Christians, especially when it comes to physical things. I don't want to get in the weeds of this, but you'll run into some people that, uh, there's some groups that believe God can do more miraculous things than other groups. Until a person desperately gets put into a corner where their physical health is, and I know people who are very adamant that almost that God doesn't do miracles anymore, and yet when they get down to the wire and their life's at stake, they'll try almost anything. And, and the leper comes to Jesus, and it's interesting as he comes to him that there's four things that we're told in the text that he does. He comes to Jesus and that he's taking the initiative. For a leper to take the initiative to engage the community was risky no matter what you talk about. You don't have the right to do this. You obviously don't care about the people around you if you're going to try to impose your presence on people that you need to be avoiding so that you keep them safe. And so he takes the initiative and he, it says he's imploring Jesus. It really talks to the attitude than the words. He has a, surge, a deep, urgent desire to somehow know that Jesus, because of the word that spread, that Jesus could possibly be the one that could cure him. And so he's willing to take risks now that he probably would never think about doing just in the normal ebb and flow of the community because he wasn't allowed to. They had their rules. They had the law on their side. The word kneeling is actually not found in a number of the manuscripts, so the question mark is just, we're actually a little bit unsure whether he did it. Other people who came to Jesus with other maladies, it's consistently recorded they came and kneeled before him. It was really a posture of humility and respect for Jesus. So he wasn't being Eric, he was being desperate. And so while we can't actually prove that, it, it uh, would seem an appropriate response for somebody who has leprosy. That he is very much willing to sit down and, and bow and kneel before Jesus and say, listen, <laughs> it's almost like, I know I'm dangerous to be around, I'm sorry for intruding, but I'm desperate. It's interesting how desperation moves us to trust Jesus in ways that often we don't have time for. It's an amazing thing how comfortable we get in our own independence. And often we forget that at times we are as helpless and vulnerable as the leper is in everyday life, we just don't think we are. As he comes to Jesus and does these particular things, I think what he's looking for is mercy and compassion because nobody's been able to do anything for him at this point. They can examine him, they can isolate him, Someday they might be able to de declare that he's clean, but it's all subject to fate, so to speak. And as he works through this, something happens with Jesus that's different than what's happened with everybody else. And one of the things that I want to encourage you to do is that often churches can fail you, people can fail you, family can fail you, they can let you down. You don't seem to, at times to get a lot of sympathy from people in our own families and in our own households and our own communities and people who are called their friends. When we go through certain things, they don't know what to do. 
It's kind of like Job's three friends who come to comfort Job when he's under huge spiritual attack and affliction. My favorite saying with those guys, or my best commentary on Job is, his friends did an outstanding job till they opened up their mouths. And then it all went downhill from there. See, because people don't know what to say. They don't know how to comfort. They don't know how to show compassion. So they end up saying all kinds of things that sound stupid to the person going through it because it's insensitive. How can you say that? You know, it's like I've heard this when it comes to funerals. I've got one near the end of the month before we take on, uh, go on vacation. And I've heard this happen before where someone dies and the first thing a Christian will ask the family member is, were they, were, were they a Christian? How do you, what do you want me to answer that one for now? I can't do anything about it. Like, why are you asking me that question? Well, they're doing it for their own sake, not necessarily for your sake. But it's hard to know how to show compassion because we don't know what to do. And it's there that I want to pause for a second because when he comes to Jesus, he comes and does something that I think is rather interesting. He comes and he beseeches him and falling on his knees and he says, if you are willing, you can make me clean. And one of the things that I want to challenge you that's a real pivotal element here is that the leper doesn't question Jesus' ability, he pleads to his willingness. I don't know if you've ever thought about it too much, but we often go through this struggle that one of the great issues of ministry is the issue of ability or willingness, or to put it into different terms, being unable to do things or unwilling to do things. And I want to walk you through that a little bit because I believe the issue of compassion is different than sympathy. Everybody has sympathy. Uh, and we have it at different levels. A lot depends on your empathy level. Uh, some of you can watch Hallmark movies and are literally bawling by the end of it because you have this massive empathy to put yourself in the shoes of people going through relational trauma and then cheer like crazy when all the, the hero comes to town and rescues. Some of you can watch something that's brutally difficult and you won't even flinch because, like, I don't care. And so we all are on, the, on different measuring sticks when it comes to sympathy and empathy and compassion. And what I want you to think about a little bit in this process is that when the leper comes to Jesus, he says, literally, if you are willing, I know that you're able. When I was praying for my buddy Brent, that was a lot of what shaped my prayer. I said, Lord, I know you're the, you're the king of the universe. There is nothing impossible for you. The earth is your footstool. All the nations combined are like a water off the drop of a bucket. And I know that as I bring my buddy Brent before you, the issue is not your ability. The issue is, would you at this moment be willing to touch his life? And God did some incredible things for my buddy Brent. He, he, the, the thing he struggles with is he doesn't know how to, how to steward it. He, he says, I feel like God's done a miracle, but I don't know whether, I don't know how to, I don't know how to proper communicate this to people because he goes, if I say I'm healed, I'm worried because I'm a proverbial skeptic, he says. What happens if it comes back? Did that mean God failed or did I fail to see what was going on? So you got this whole process and I said, well, Brent, here's what I do. We tend to want to make these eschatological declarations of what's happened so it's like he's healed and if you don't do that then you lack faith but then as he's going through it I said what you can do is wow when the doctors took another look at that they can't find any sign of cancer and that's a work of God 
Wherever it goes from here, that's a work of God. And you have reason to celebrate because you have missed probably the most, one of the most radical surgeries I can even imagine. That's something we're celebrating and praising God about. What happens tomorrow? I don't know. We'll just keep following Jesus. But when, when we come to this particular scenario, he appeals to Jesus' willingness. And I, I want you to think about that a little bit because I think all of us have sympathy, not all of us have compassion. Let me, let me try to picture it a little bit for you because I want you to struggle a little bit with this whole idea of Jesus. I don't like the word pity. The, the pity sounds condescending to me. It's just, it's, it's not so much, that it's the English word we use. I just, it doesn't resonate with me because pity's like, oh, you poor, miserable thing. Let me try to help you kind of thing. That's just the way it resonates in me. But compassion is, there's a person in need. When Pharaoh's daughter found Moses in the reeds, she was under her father's command to drown infant boys. And yet she had pity, she had compassion, so she rescued him from inevitable death. Sympathy, I believe, is very much in the same way as compassion, begins with, I can identify with your suffering and may or may not be able to help, at least on a gut level. What you're going through tears at me. I, I am in pain. I am in agony and turmoil because I see what you're going through. It's not the idea that, I, hey, I know, what you're go- I know exactly what you're going through. No, that tends to be some of those statements we make. When we've never been there, it's hard to say because it's no comfort to the person we say it to. Because, no, you don't know what I'm going through because I'm the only one going through this. But sympathy says, man, my heart is broken for you. I, I'm in turmoil, I'm in angst, I am pray, I'm praying for you because there's something about going through it that people empathize with and they sympathize and they have the ability to some degree to put themselves in their shoe and they go, this would be terrifying. But sympathy identifies with your suffering but not necessarily has a willingness to help. I know all kinds of people who sympathize with what people are going through but they don't, they don't, they don't do anything to help. And I, I want to propose to you, even though it, it's, we're going to micromanage the nuance of this a little bit, that sympathy can feel a lot, but it doesn't do anything. Sympathy lacks the ability or the willingness to help. And I'm going to show you a picture here in a minute to try to capture this. Compassion, what Jesus does is he doesn't say, oh, you poor person. i really sorry you have to go through this, but get back to your camp and do your, fulfill the, your isolation time. He doesn't do that. Compassion is identify with your suffering and I'm able to help, but identify with your suffering and I'm also willing to help. And I believe that if you want to draw a distinction between sympathy and compassion, sympathy can feel bad for people, compassion does something about it. Because when you look at Jesus and he has this compassion, this pity, he doesn't just wave at him and say, hey, I hope you get better. Jesus actually steps into his life and he does something. Let me show you this picture that I think uh, might make this a little bit clearer. Um, If you look at sort of a category of things, sympathy can run one of two different ways. I might be able to do something, but I'm unwilling to do it. That's sympathy. I might be unwilling to do it, but I have the ability. Uh, For instance, all of us have, I think most of us probably drive a car and you come up to the intersections and uh, street corner and there'll be someone begging on the corner 
asking for money because they want something. This guy the other day wanted insulin for $18. I'm kind of like, well, my wife's a diabetic. I know it's not $18. I'm kind of like, <laughs> so I, whatever, it doesn't matter. But, but you and I go through this process when we come up there and you might have 10, 15, 20 bucks, but you pull up to them and they're begging for money so they can buy food, for instance. And you can be, well, let's say a lot of us are both unwilling and unable to help. I drive up there, I don't, if I don't drive any, have any cash on hand, I've got nothing to give them, and so I don't. But some of us drive up and we'd have cash in our pocket, but we'd look at the person and we'd go, well, hang on. If I give this person money, I suspect that it's going to go to this and this and this and not to food. And so I'm able, but I'm unwilling because this isn't good stewardship for me to give something to somebody who's going to handle it poorly. You never thought that before? Okay. There's another person who might drive up and they have maybe no cash in their hands and the person drives up, but they roll down their window and they say, listen, there's a restaurant right on the corner I don't have any cash to give you, but if you go up there, I'll buy you lunch because all I got is a credit card. So they are both able and willing to do something for that person. The point in this is that we often struggle with this issue and yet we've recast it lots of ways to make ourselves feel better about not helping people. And the way we do it is this. What we tend to do is that we will take the idea of being unwilling and we flip it to play the card that we're unable. See, a person who drives up and doesn't have any cash and wants to help the person would never think that I'm going to take time out of my schedule to go up to the restaurant and buy them a meal at the local restaurant. They just go, look, I don't have any cash and I would do something for you if I had something, but I can't. So I play the unable card when if I said, well, listen, if you go up to the restaurant, I'll come around and buy it with my credit card so you can eat something, then they're both actually able and willing. Now, this gets to be a struggle in our life because how do we meet everybody's needs? Are we supposed to be meeting every single need that we, because I'd be broke if we did that. How are we supposed to manage this? Well, I want to notch this up one more level before I get into the nuances of that. I, I believe that James chapter 2 really spoke to this same issue. Do you remember James? We'll get to James eventually in terms of our preaching schedule, but not today. James chapter 2 says this, What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to him, Go in peace and be warmed and filled, sympathy, maybe even empathy, Go in, uh, go in peace, be warmed and filled without giving them the th things needed for the body. What good is that? So also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. So we can nuance this a little bit to between the issue of sympathy and compassion. I think there's a distinction because James makes the same distinction. But he doesn't talk about it whether you're sympathetic or compassionate. He says, if you have a living faith in Christ, and you don't have the kind of compassion to even help your brother and sister in need, then your faith is worthless. But Lord, 
I'm just not able. I don't think what I'm going to do is really going to make a difference. But faith without works is dead, isn't it? Well, but Lord, if I give this to somebody and they don't steward it the way I think they should, then I've just wasted your money. And I suspect the Lord would go, why don't you let me worry about that? You're trying to make determinations on how other people are to act by making excuses how you're not going to act. And so as we move through this process of what Jesus does, if you walk away with nothing else, Jesus doesn't just have sympathy and empathy for this person, he has compassion. And the difference is, is that he actually reaches out and does something. It's a really simple truth, but I'll tell you, I, as well as long as, with many of you, know how difficult sometimes that can be. Max Lucado made this statement. For years I thought my assignment or the church's assignment was to articulate the gospel and nothing more. Now I believe that if we don't support the verbal expression of the gospel with a physical demonstration of compassion, we are not imitating Jesus. Francis Schaeffer, who is the great uh, early 1900 uh, theologian, said, biblical orthodoxy without compassion is surely the ugliest thing in the world. And it made me pause as I'm working through this to go, maybe my faith is a lot more dead than I think it is. Because when I see people in need, I have certainly, if I'm putting on scales, way more excuses why I'm not helping people than the number of examples that I have of how I'm helping people. And it becomes a difficult issue because then the question is, well, how many people do I help and how do I figure that out without going broke? I don't know if Jesus did a survey of his finances at the time. He had an individual who sought him out at that particular moment in those circumstances, which is all the time often we have. We don't have time to work it into our planner. That someone comes in front of us that maybe the Lord brings to us that we have to make a spot-on decision about what it looks like to help somebody or not. And I think your struggle is the same as my struggle, is that we go through this, am I unwilling or unable? And the safest thing to do is play the unable card. God, I'm just not able to do it. I've got a schedule. I've got to get somewhere. I don't have any money. I don't know how to do this. I don't think it'll make a difference. I think they're going to abuse the help that I do. They're not going to listen to what I do. They're not going to treat the money I give them responsibly. So those are all be great excuses to say, look, I'm just unable and I'm unwilling because it's not good stewardship. And I want to suggest to you that Jesus demonstrates something here that if we don't get, we will never make the kind of impact in the world that we would like to. And that very simply is this. I believe one of the defining characteristics of ministry and especially the mission of the gospel is that it goes hand in hand with compassion. And I would agree with Chandler that too easy we want to proclaim the gospel and give them the right information and get them to heaven but we just don't care enough to touch real life issues. And I believe that without compassion, we will never reach out and touch lives that are suffering. We'll always have a reason not to do it. 
We'll always feel unable. We'll always have the excuse of being unwilling. Without compassion, we'll never communicate the gospel effectively. Without compassion, we'll never step into the journey of others and help them to see that this isn't just some religious, ethereal philosophy that we're promoting, but it's really intended to change people so that we impact the world in the most tangible, down-to-earth way possible. Daniel Goleman, who is an author, said, true compassion means not only feeling another's pain, but also being moved to help relieve it. And so I want you to look at the response of God's servant, Jesus. Notice what the text says. And Jesus, uh, he reaches out and touches him, but then he does something that's really odd. (laughs) Jesus, in Mark 1.43, says, Jesus sternly charged him and sent him away at once and said to him, see that you say nothing to anyone. Well, that doesn't sound like a very good evangelism tactic. I thought the whole point of doing miracles was like we're supposed to attract people from the world, and Jesus was taking the very opposite direction, going, look, don't tell anyone about this, which makes no sense, but that's what he told them, although it does make sense if we look at it. See that you say nothing to anyone, but go show yourself to the priests and offer your cleansing, uh, what Moses commanded, for a proof to them. So why does he tell him not to tell other people? Well, it gets down to the same question that we often have, is that why doesn't Jesus just heal all of those who are God's people and rid them of all the affliction they're going through because then they will be on fire and they can talk about what God's goodness is to them. The reason why I believe Jesus doesn't want this to happen is because he doesn't need more people thronging to him just to see what they can get out of them to fix their immediate temporary circumstances. Because that's inevitably what happened. We see it in John 6 and other places where Jesus fed the 5,000 and the 4,000 and they chased him down, not because they saw that he could meet a deeper need in their life, but because, hey, this guy can put out a good meal. And the danger, even for Christians, is that we treat God like a concierge. He's there to serve us and he's there to fix my circumstances. And frankly, I don't believe that everybody that God healed automatically became a Christian. The whole issue here is that people want God to be a concierge to make life easier. They don't want him to solve the problem of the sin that's in their heart to reconcile them back to God. And I believe that's exactly why Jesus tells them, don't go tell anyone, because I don't need more people here just to fix their external stuff when their heart need is the biggest issue. Jesus tells him something different. Mark chapter 6, is a, the term is used in Mark 6. And he's telling his disciples, if any place that will not receive you when he sends them out to preach the gospel, and they will not listen to you when you leave, shake off the dust that is on your feet as a testimony, as a proof against them. James 5.3, your gold and your silver have corroded, and their, corruption, uh, their corrosion will be evidence against you, and you will eat, it will eat your flesh like fire. The problem is the people who ought to be the most compassionate in this community ought to be the priests. Ought to be be the the spiritual leaders who are uh, not just carrying out the law and the letter of the law, but they're individuals who are committed to caring for these people, to showing compassion. Now, there's other things that are going on here. Jesus is demonstrating the Messiah is on the scene, and he wants them to know about it. I think he's giving evidence to them that God is fulfilling his kingdom purpose and he's the Messiah. But I think he's also doing it because 
at times the people that ought to show the most compassion are the ones that aren't doing it. And I think that's what God calls us as the body of Christ. That if there's anything that the world needs to see, it's the gospel message, but it's also the compassion of Christ. And yet sometimes we've mastered the message, but we haven't mastered the method. That's why as we go through, and we're going to introduce as we move closer to September, the new vision frame that we've been talking about as elders, one of the things that we're pretty committed to is the idea of generosity and good works that reflect the compassion of Christ in people's lives so that the gospel has this powerful open door. Because they see we're not just trying to get quotas to get people to heaven, but we actually care about what happens here on earth. Jesus is going to send a message to have him go through all the right procedures so that the priest can go like, wait a minute, I know I just saw you last week. How did this happen? But I simply want you to notice the results. Here's a guy who's just been cleansed by Jesus and we're told that it's already happened. He doesn't need the priest to tell him that. But he directly disobeys what Jesus asked him to do. I don't know if Jesus is going to make a big deal about it. Probably not. It's just kind of the way things unfold because when people are touched not only with the gospel, but when they're touched by the compassion of Christ, it is about as life-changing as almost the gospel. He went out and began to talk freely about it and to spread the news so that Jesus could no longer openly enter a town but was out in desolate places and people were coming to him in that quarter. One guy who's been touched by the compassion of Jesus so radically because he hadn't felt compassion, he knew he was an outsider, he knew that he was kind of the reject of the community, and he was going to stay that way unless something happened, who discovered the compassion of Christ to heal him, and it was so powerful, he just spread the word everywhere. He wasn't worried about reputation, what people thought. It was like, man, I had leprosy. I'm back to normal. And so I want to ask you this morning, how good are you at compassion? I think not only do we have compassion fatigue, but we've mentioned this before, the frenetic busyness of life kills compassion. We don't have time, we've got too many things going, I've got to sort of survive myself, and so the whole idea that I'm going to take time out to respond to someone else's need just sounds like a death trap to most of us. And I want to encourage you as you think about it, one, because it's part of our whole picture of a disciple here. We're talking about strengthening our relationship with Christ, and as that grows and matures, and as we understand what that means, it should result in serving. Serving others in the body of Christ. And uh, if I can throw up an advertisement for our different ministries, there's, as we continue to grow, we still are playing with the idea of church playing. We can't do that unless we get a lot more people in the wheelhouse where we can reproduce and grow our ministries. So if you've got nothing to do in September and like you don't know what to do, we can help you. 
But, but at the, the heart of our picture of a disciple is based on Colossians chapter 4, where we talk about sharing our lives with a lost world. And at the heart, one of the heartbeats of this is let your speech always be with grace. Walk with wisdom towards outsiders. Be actively showing compassion to people around you. And I know we've had some people that have done a remarkable job of touching other people's lives. I don't say this and present this because I don't think it's going on because I think our people in many ways are doing a marvelous job of it. But we need to be reminded that we're not going to win the world through sympathy. We're certainly not going to save the world if we spend all our time criticizing and judging. At the heart of the gospel are individuals in a community of faith that's deeply committed to showing the compassion of Christ. And I believe it's so critical to the message of the gospel that if we're not doing it, we're never going to see the gospel have the kind of impact that it ought to. Chris Jammy, who is an American philosopher, I don't know if he's even a Christian, said, good works is giving to the poor and the helpless, but divine works is showing them their worth in the one who matters. I want to encourage you to think about the, the reality of it. Titus chapter 3 simply says this, when the goodness and the loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, he saved us not because of the works done in, by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy. By the washing and regeneration and renewing of the Holy Spirit whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior. And I want to I encourage you to think about, are you a sympathetic person or are you a compassionate person? I mean, if we sat down and said, hey, listen, last two weeks, tell me some of the stories, some of the opportunities God has given to you to show compassion to people. Would we have stories to tell or would we have to go back a few months to figure that out? One of the most powerful partners of the gospel is people who know how to show compassion that's what we want to become that's what we want to continue to become that's what we want to master showing his compassion with generosity and good works as a means to relationship to care for those who need the hope of the gospel pray with me if you will father thank you for the example of christ you know, at times it, it becomes really uncomfortable, especially when we hear James' words that to just wish people well and not know that we often have the ability and it's just the unwillingness that we lack to, to help people, then our faith is literally worthless. I don't know about anyone else, Lord, but sometimes I've been functionally worthless way too caught up with me, way too caught up with my schedule, don't have time to make adjustments, don't have time to care for people. Teach us, Lord, to be really careful about playing the inability card. There's times that it's very true that we just don't have the ability to make that difference. We all know that. But sometimes we try to cloak our unwillingness in inability.
just so that we don't have to feel the conviction of your spirit, of at times being indifferent to the needs of people around us because we care more about ourselves and our schedule than about the gospel and people. Father, you've showed great compassion to us. May we in turn learn how to show compassion to others, and for this we do pray in Christ's name. Amen.